Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From unseasonably balmy Minnesota, it's election shock therapy. Hey, guys, how's it going? Greetings. Nice. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on this Google Hangout today are... Andy Bramson. And Matt Kukum. And guys, um, as upper Midwesterners, be honest with me. Don't you feel a little bit let down when it's 50 in December? No. I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. I, I, know, yeah. I know we say we're fine with it, but isn't there this part of you that's like, I like to like show the rest of the country that like Minnesota has terrible weather and yet we endure it. I mean, there's a certain sort of sort of softness. I sort of like an anti Rooseveltian kind of uh, a, a notion that like, like mild weather in the middle of winter is, is like good for us, you know? I mean, maybe that's something you Midwesterners do, but I'm not a Midwesterner, so let's just let's just clarify that point. I would say it's, I think it's I think it's part of the Midwesterner identity to um, sort of be tough with bad weather, and when we don't have bad weather to be tough with, um, we're like we get itchy, like we want to we want to complain about about wind chills, but you can't complain about wind chills when it's literally 50 degrees out. Yeah. No, I mean, but the thing is, like, we'll we'll end up having the bad weather soon enough. Like, I, I've sort of adopted. The <laughs> That's the Midwestern like, response. <laughs> but you know, like, we, I enjoy the moments like this. Like, right today, it's sunny. That is so helpful for the mood. Uh, it's not as cold. That's so helpful. And you know, it'll be cold and gray and snowy soon enough. Well, yeah, that's that's what gets me. Like, if it's going to be cold and gray and thirty degrees, there ought to be snow, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Exactly. And if we don't have that and we instead have, you know, like, you know, sunny and 50 degrees, like I'm down with sunny and 50 yep. degrees. But if it's going to be cold and gray, we ought to have snow. And what ticks me off is when it's like cold and gray for days on end, like below the freezing point, but there's no snow. That is irritating. Yeah. Yeah. So. True. Well, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about <laughs> Joe Biden, who is slightly more interesting than the weather. Um, <laughs> okay, we have a couple things to get through today, but we, this is the uh, this is part three in our little mini series of um, of 2020 and beyond. And so, in our first two uh, segments, we covered uh, polls and demographics. Last week, we looked at yep. Trump, Trumpism, and the future of the GOP. And we're going to switch uh, sides of the aisle today and talk about the Biden administration and the future of the Democratic Party. Uh, this was not a clear-cut vic- electoral victory for Democrats. Yes, Joe Biden clearly and definitively won the presidency. All yeah. other claims aside uh, by Rudy Giuliani and or Donald Trump. But Democrats really underperformed their own expectations behind yes. uh, President Biden. Uh, it, um, the uh, Democratic ability to control the Senate appears to hinge on two uh, Georgia Senate races, uh, which are both in runoffs right now. Talk about that a little bit if you guys want. Um, and then um, Democrats actually lost seats in the House. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, a very, it's a relatively narrow 
um, Democratic majority uh, in the House. And across the country, Democratic uh, legislatures at the state level um, didn't capture key states, in particular key states where redistricting is going to become really important. Right. So uh, there is a lot to feel good about if you're a Republican behind uh, the Biden victory here. So right. what are the implications of this, guys? Um, what do you what do you read into sort of the state of affairs um, in American politics, given this sort of mixed result of the 2020 elections? Well, it certainly seems to open up the Democratic Party to some interesting internal debates, which they're already starting to have, right? I mean, um, what is what is the right direction for this party going forward? I mean, is the move um, to the left that they've certainly been engaging in, is that right? Is that a good, a good decision or is it going to really weaken their appeal in places where they need to win some votes, right? Um, and so is this kind of electorally disastrous? And in fact, you have you know, relatively more moderate Democrats in particular in the House already making that case and saying, like, you really hurt us by moving us, you know, you people on the far left, you hurt us by pushing us too far to the left. Um, you know, slogans like defund the police were strategically terrible ideas, right? This really hurt us um, with some key key voting blocks. And that's why we're coming back with this reduced majority with these this disappointing outcome in the Senate. Uh, because in both the Senate and House, frankly, like when you look at kind of the the range of outcomes that places like 538 were saying, you know, this is the range of like likely possibilities. These were on the very positive end for Republicans. They were still within that range. They weren't like wildly shocking, but they were on the like best case scenario for Republicans. This is probably how it ends up. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's disappointing if you're the Democrats, especially when you did win the presidency and win the presidency um, with a pretty strong margin, right? Like this did not, it did not carry down ballot races as much as they'd hoped. Why is that, Matt? Do you have a sense that um, is is was this all bad marketing on the part of the Democrats? <laughs> yeah, and and that really gets to you know the the question that everyone is asking, or at least all the Democrats are asking, understandably, right? We we won the presidency, but we did much much poorer down ballot. Um, and it seems like there's three sort of hypotheses that are emerging, and how you um, which hypotheses you sort of land on as your theory or as your narrative is going to kind of determine the side you're on and the position that you take going forward, what you think is going to, should be the approach of the Democratic Party over the next four years. So the first hypothesis is, you know, just a bad agenda, right? Um, sort of perhaps um, the country, you know, or a large part of the country, a majority, we should say, um, maybe a small majority has rejected sort of a hard left progressive agenda, not merely just the rejection of, you know, standard sort of welfare state liberalism, but some of the more extreme, extreme things like Green New Deal, defund the police, you know, all the sorts of fairly radical things that the majority of the politicians running in the Democratic Party and the Democratic primary um, for president, the things that they advocated for. So, so there's a question like, do we have a bad agenda um, that is just alienating a lot of the country? The second hypothesis is that um, we just have bad campaign strategy, right? So we did great in fundraising, but it turned out that that didn't really matter, right? Uh, we outspent, you know, Democrats outspent Republicans on so many races, but, um, but didn't bear a lot of fruit in that. Um, and so, you know, in coupling sort of that 
you know, seeming fundraising, you know, lack of advantage, right? Couple that with the fact that Democrats, um, because of the pandemic and their predominant approach to the pandemic, did a lot less sort of campaign organizing and a lot of a lot of less sort of get out the vote operations that are just really crucial and a key part um, of you know the campaign strategy for both parties for decades now, and they did a lot less of that, um, and they were worried about that going in, and it turns out the people that were Democrats that were worried about that were right to be worried about that. So yep. um, this, this was in, this was not um, hapless. This was intentional. Right. The Democrats decided because of the coronavirus not to do yeah. door knocking, not to do a lot of get out the vote operations. The Republicans still did. Right. And I yep. think you're seeing some of the results of that. Yeah, please go ahead, yeah. Matt. Exactly. No, thank you. And then the third hypothesis, um, which I understand a little bit less, is just sort of bad messaging, right? Um, and this is more along the lines of like, hey, um, we just didn't do a good job sort of with packaging. Um, we didn't sort of make the sorts of appeals that sort of middle Americans, mainstream Americans um, are going to find compelling, like, you know, more messaging on healthcare um, and stuff that really matters to them, right? Focusing um, a little bit less on some of the radical stuff that we like and more on sort of things that have broader appeal, right? right. And so what I've sort of seen um, is that you know, a lot of so there's there's a split in the Democratic Party, right? Um, what I've seen is there's not been even amongst mainstream liberals, there's been more of a leaning towards hypothesis two and a hypothesis three, of sort of bad campaign strategy and bad messaging. Um, and I'm not sure there's been sort of enough reckoning within the Democratic Party about um, just how certain elements of the Democratic Party agenda really did turn off a lot of Americans. So, so I would yeah. say, you know, the majority of the Democratic Party is sort of leaning towards hypothesis two and three. I would say it's a mix of all three, right? All three yeah. played in, in some pretty, pretty important ways. Can yeah. I throw one more, um, I, this is not, I, I, one more hypothesis, I guess. Yeah, please do. Which is, do you ever, do you subscribe to the theory, Matt, that the country has a um, partisan leaning at any given time? Is that is that uh, what I mean by that is do we go through eras in American politics where um, we we sort of have we, we talk about the progressive era right do we have an era where we're sort of wired for being more amenable to progress this certainly seemed to be the case in the New Deal era and then the Reagan era was not just Reagan but seemed to be the country was less willing to move forward rapidly in terms of progressivism we've been in a we've been in a more progressive bent for whether it's Bush, and I actually do think of Bush as a progressive in terms of sort of foreign policies, the expansion of uh, US wars abroad, and then certainly Obama as a social progressive. And um, and are we, are, we, are, we, are we now backing away from that? Is Trump sort of capturing a, a, a mood in the country of um, being less willing, to, are, we, are we less amenable to some of the um, uh, sort of the hard left progressive agenda that you discussed because of the country's mood? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends on how you would measure measure ideology and population, and of course, how you're measuring that is just capturing one slice of reality. So, I mean, you know, it, yeah. most people don't change their ideologies, you know, so from from year to year, right? True. You Very might true. see so so individual ideological sort of positioning is fairly stable. You can get sort of these sort of vacillations in the aggregate, mm -hmm. right? Um, but they're they're not huge, right? Of course, it doesn't right. take 
more than just um, you know when you do have polarization in a country that's fairly evenly divided it only takes relatively small vacillations to sort of um, push things in one direction or the other and give an appearance like oh we're becoming more progressive or oh we're becoming more conservative so there's that um, and also you know people that do tend to um, push the, the people who do tend to sort of vacillate and cause the aggregate to shift a little bit one direction or the other are also the, some of the least ideological people in America, right? Yeah. Um, they're they're the, they're the folks that you know are driven more by the personality, but sort of by their perception of how well each party has done, right? Sort of over over somewhat a longer period of time, sort of this ret retrospective sort of um, you know voting, right? So so yeah, I don't know if I necessarily buy that theory i think you could add another layer and say that you know there there can be shifts there can be vacillations in shifts in people's sort of aggregate ideology but perhaps just as important is sort of the shifts we've seen in people's um sort of trust in overall institutions right that was at a, a an all-time high under the the new you know the new deal right and, yep, and up yep. through and up through um, LBJ, but you know all of that started to fall apart with the Vietnam War. Um, you know the Watergate for sure. Watergate exactly, right. um, and even the Great Society of LBJ didn't turn out to be all it was cracked up to be. So, and then from there, you gradually saw started to see sort of this this demise of this across both parties of this trust in institutions, and that's very much where we are now. So, I think in some ways that's that's the more the more important story. That's kind of what's led us to this sort of populist moment right now. Yeah, right. And and I think the the polarization. I mean, it just plays in here so much. Like, it there's less of a population that's persuadable, right? And that is a big shift even since the Reagan years, right? Where, um, you know, you yeah. did have you still had a, a pretty large group of people that could be swayed by personalities, by the what felt like the demands of the moment, right? Uh, and we are just so polarized in our two camps, right, that it's, it's become increasingly difficult for most of the population to think of an alternative to voting Democrat or voting Republican, right? That's right. just who we are now. Um, and and so that, I think that makes it less likely that we as a country shift dramatically right or left, at least the way things are now. Maybe something breaks that up, but right now it doesn't feel like we're there. Yeah. Now, I was going to since it's your fault, Chris, um, but I'm, I'm glad you asked the question. I was, I was going to save this for next time, but I think, you know, it's important to, you know, I actually talked about this with my class class this morning, um, is that there's two different types of polarization. There's ideological polarization, which is, of course, the one that we talk about, right? And it's linked closely yeah. to sort of partisanship. Um, and it turns out that ideological polarization are sort of disagreement on issues and on sort of political outlooks in general. Ideological polarization has actually remained fairly stable over the past couple of generations. But what's yeah. changed? What's changed is effective or affective polarization. Yep. Um, and yep. basically, it turns out we don't disagree with each other more. It's just we hate and fear each other more. Right. Um, yes. So what we see is not so much actual disagreement. We just see more tribalism. Right. Um, and that's something that we're, we're seeing in both parties as, you know, both parties sort of move further apart. Um, they're moving further apart, most importantly, on sort of this, this fear of the other side. Um, and it's the people who have the most fear and hatred and concern and worry, right? Those are the people that are sort of driving, um, driving the parties right now, um, driving the parties through the primary system. Um, and we can talk about that at some point, but yep. that's what's going on. Well, let's 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 bring in the Democratic Party here for a moment because there are factions like this within the Democratic Party, and 
we've talked about sort of the more uh, um, progressive, hard left side of the party. There's the more institutional centrist part of the Democratic Party. Um, how will they um, work together or fail to work together moving forward? Uh, whether, that's the, whether it's a bad agenda, a bad campaign strategy, bad messaging within the 2020 election, how will they diagnose and treat uh, this problem? <laughs> With some high degree of difficulty, I suspect. Um, and then it, it's interesting, like it was, it was very difficult for House Democrats to work together in the last house question, right? And that was with a bigger majority. Um, they will now have a razor thin majority. I mean, they can what, afford to lose like maybe four votes on any given vote out of the 200 and some they have, right? I mean, um, that's really problematic, right? That is, that is gonna be very difficult to hold together. Um, it's gonna be interesting, like, you know, does Nancy Pelosi survive? I think she's going to, but um, it's not clear what the alternative is. But again, like that was already somewhat controversial and they lost seats, right? I mean, so I think it's gonna be, um, I think it's going to be contentious. Um, you know, I, I suspect like a lot of the things come on Joe Biden, right? Can he can he find a way to bring them together? Having the White House does help, right? It helps you unite behind certain priorities that the president said he wants this, right? So you know, maybe that maybe that draws them together behind that agenda. Um, on the other hand, it only requires Biden, you know, not towing the line on some issue that is very dear to progressives, and he probably won't somewhere down the road, right? Um, and you you could easily have kind of open warfare within the party. So it's gonna be really interesting. Uh, I don't know what this is gonna look like exactly, but stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, I think he's gonna, I mean, threading the needle for Biden is gonna be really hard. I think yeah. he's gonna do some things to sort of like throw some bones um, yep. to, to, the, to the hard left, um, yep. but he himself is not in that mold. And so I think for maybe right. the things that he cares about most. I mean, he does sort of conform himself to the to the middle of wherever the party's at, which is moving further right. left, right? So he's going to be more left now than he was, you know, back during Absolutely. his time in the Senate. So I think Absolutely. that's going to be the case. Um, but he's still sort of a he's still an institutionalist. Um, he's still not going to go all the way with the left. And and right. he has, you know, we've said this before. He has cover for that too, um, uh -huh. because he knows like, well, hey, the Republicans likely going to control the Senate. Um, the Democrats have a just razor thin margin in the House. Um, this ties my hands. I can't do everything that you want. Um, right. All you people on right. the far left, right? And I think in some ways, I, I wonder if Biden sort of sees this as a gift to himself, because I think Biden does see himself truly as someone who unites um, and who can bring people together, because that was kind of what what he. Um, yeah, that's just the image that I think he has of himself. And so I think. Yep. I think what this does is this actually gives him more maneuvering room, um, so he doesn't have to be beholden to to the other side. And I think, I think you know there are some some indications that even people who are pretty far left, you know, in Congress realize that they aren't going to be able to get a lot of the stuff that they want, right? So some of them are being realistic, I think, um, and are going to try to make the most of it. But obviously, there's still some loud voices that are going to be clamoring for sort of maximalist sort of progressive policies. And, and we'll see if the Democratic Party is able to basically tell those people, sit down and shut up and play ball with the rest of the party and focus on what's good for the party in the long term. You'll get your shot eventually, but we got to govern now so we can set ourselves up for 22 and 24, those elections, right? So we'll see if the party leadership is able to sort of you know, wrangle everyone together, whip everyone together to sort of hang together so that you can 
set yourself up well for the future. Right, right. And a lot of those people have not been very cooperative so far. I mean, like the kind of AOCs and the Ilhan Omars have not, right? And so I think that's the, yeah, that's going to be a crucial question. Can you get them to cooperate? Um, and, you know, I don't know. Uh, the Republican sort of analogy with the Tea Party is not a terribly promising one, right? I mean, it turned out in a lot of cases, the answer was not really. You couldn't really get them to cooperate. Yeah. So I'll take a slightly different tact here. And I and I'll, I think I broadly agree with what the two of you are saying. But there might be some benefit for Biden, who now he has a reduced uh, majority in the House. He's probably not going to control the Senate. But we'll talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and... He no longer has uh, the kinds of the kinds of very progressive policies that were on the table during the campaign are now gone. We're not going to impact or expand the Supreme Court. Um, you're not going to um, uh, have probably not going to have Medicaid for or Medicare for all. Um, these are probably not options that can reasonably be considered with the current configuration of Congress. So, what does Biden do instead? Uh, he probably does the kinds of things that Biden would be particularly good at, which is small ball, right? Putting competent people in charge of government agencies, uh, restoring America's sort of uh, political discourse, um, maybe some modest uh, revisions to things like Obamacare, um, but probably not any kinds of big sweeping legislative agendas. Um in that kind of world, having an AOC or an Ilhan Omar on the margin, making the case for progressive uh, a progressive vision of the Democratic Party is fine. You can live with one or two or three or four members of Congress making that case as long as they know there aren't the votes there to get anything done. He doesn't have to fight that internal war um, because their hands are tied. Yep. Yeah, and uh, he knows he'll have to work with Republicans, right? So all of a sudden, your focus your focus isn't on keeping the Democrats together. The point is like, well, really, half the fight I have to do is to find some Republicans to get on board with some of my policies, and that's a different. And in order to do that, I can't go um, super far left, right? Um, and that's just gonna, you know, that creates a, a different a different approach, right? So I, I agree, you're going to see sort of. Yep. Um, you can't. You're not going to see huge sweeping pieces of legislation um, that overhaul, you know, some significant part of the, the executive bureaucracy, some sort of some policy area. But yeah, you're, I think you can see smaller things. Smaller in the sense they're not sweeping reforms. They might be like huge spending bills, but you know, but they're not sure. going to be sort of uh, systemic sort of changes. Incrementalism at its finest. Yeah. Sure. Right. Uh, Matt, does that change if Democrats somehow uh, pull the double upset and win both Georgia House Senate seats? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously that that changes the the landscape for a lot of things, right? I mean, so obviously that means he doesn't have to. Um, I mean, that gives people like Joe Manchin and Susan uh, Collins even more power in some ways, especially yeah. Joe Manchin um, and maybe Kristen Cinema, right? But. So, but he's still not going to be able to push super far left because all it takes is Joe Manchin bailing out, right? And that that basically throws a wrench into the gears, right? And he's still got a really narrow margin in the House, too. So I think the bigger deal is that this is going to make it easier for him to get 
um, Senate appointments through for for the courts and yes. for executive offices. That's a bigger deal. Deal. Republicans would no longer be in charge of the committees in the Senate, which means that they wouldn't be able to conduct as much in the way of like oversight and investigations. Um, yep. And that that's actually maybe the most important thing. So so it actually does matter, um, but it matters more for like in some ways it might matter more for non-legislative tasks. Right, right. I think the appointments piece to me is huge. I think it makes his appointment life really easier. Yeah. I don't think it changes much about the sweeping legislation thing we just said. One more quick, really esoteric thing. It's not on our agenda, so if you guys want to punt on this, it's fine. <laughs> did you know? Did you see uh, the magic trick that William Barr, the current Attorney General, pulled this last week? Um, not. What tell us, that? William Barr. There, there. So. And I, for, forgive me for not having. I'm not well prepped on this. There has been a, um, a uh, an investigation into the investigation of Donald Trump's interactions in Ukraine that led to his impeachment. So yes. this is Donald Trump's investigate the investigators. Uh, uh, and what William Barr did. Uh, this last week was he took the man in charge of that special investigation and he made him an independent oh. counsel. Yes. Which means he cannot easily be dismissed by Congress in the new, in the new Congress. He'd have to be uh, fired by Joe Biden, um, who was part of the investigation into Donald Trump's affair with Ukraine, uh, which, as you, if you may recall, was Donald Trump seeking um, uh, information, sensitive information on Joe Biden's and Joe, uh, Joe, uh, Joe's son in Ukraine. And so if Biden fires the special investigator, this looks really bad, right? Yeah. So at the very least, there is this going to be this lingering oversight of the of the of Biden in the terms of this uh, independent counsel who's going to be continuing to look into these matters, even into the Biden administration. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so this was this was last week. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there's some sticking point in that there is a there's a statute that says independent counsels cannot be um, they have to be someone who is outside of the federal government. Uh, I mean, of course, um, Durham, um, who is the, yes. the appointment Durham. to special counsel is, is a U.S. attorney um, for, I forget which state off the top of my head. Um, so, so there's, there's that wrinkle and that's what's raising some eyebrows. Um, but I think, you know, Durham so far, he's been, he's been quite a professional um, and, mm -hmm. You know there is good reason to investigate some of the investigations and sort of the the initial things that kicked off the fbi investigation of trump whatever trump did and there's certainly some unethical maybe some unlawful things there um we do know that there was you know how the fbi sort of comported himself there's there's good reason to believe that there was some unethical potentially some unlawful things there and we don't have all the information yet and we need that information and I think Durham, you know, getting appointed to this is going to be in a position to hopefully get to the bottom of that. And I think, you know, there's not a whole lot of reason for Biden to basically try to short circuit that. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not particularly worked up about this. If you're if if you're Joe Biden and you're, you're very confident that there's nothing really uh, deeply incriminating on you and your administration out of that investigation, you just want to leave that alone and just let it yep. let it sit the th uh, the sixth page of the news um uh, firing yep. it would, would only make it much much worse yeah 
Right. Yeah, he doesn't want to touch touch that rail. Um, he'll get he'll get electrocuted if he does that. So there's yeah. really not advantage much advantage of firing him anyway. I mean, yeah. unless there's just some evidence he's about to stumble upon that you know would reveal. But in which case, that could get leaked anyway, and it's like exactly. Yeah, right? so. Yep. Yep. Well, we've talked a little bit about uh, Biden's hands being tied in terms of legislation. That opens up a realm of him to do more in terms of executive orders. Um, which would be in keeping with Pat with the last couple of presidents as well. We've seen a dramatic climb in the number of subset of substantial executive orders um, from Bush through Obama through Trump, um, mostly because adversarial members of uh, Congresses have prevented them from acting legislatively, so they've acted on their own in terms of executive orders. I see no reason to expect that there wouldn't be a flurry of executive orders um, from the Biden administration undoing some of Trump's policies very yep. early, I mean, like within the first couple of days of the Biden yep. administration. Anything you guys have your eye on? Any few executive orders that you're, you're watching out for? I think he's going to try to do some things that will clean up immigration. Um, it, that you know he, that there's been a very strong narrative for good reason um, that the Trump administration has been anti-immigrant, that it has um, been trying to restrict that. So I think there he will want to do something to to signal it's different. Um, I think he's going to want to signal, and he's already suggested with, with the John Kerry appointment, um, a big shift on the climate issues, right? The, the attitude on U.S. climate some early action there. The immigration one might actually change much in the short run, not because of a lack of desire on that, but because of COVID. <laughs> but but I think he'll still want to make some kind of signal. Yeah, yeah. So you're going to see him reinstate DACA, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. You'll see him end the, the ban on immigration from some Muslim countries. You'll yep. see him re-entering the Paris Climate Accords and the World Health Organization and a slew of other sorts of organizations that the U.S. left under Trump. You'll see executive reg regulations on climate and energy and business. Lots of regulations probably coming down the pike. Um, you're going to probably see some federal ethics um, related executive orders um, regarding um, having the White House stay out of federal prosecutions. Um, yep. He's talking about creating a commission on federal ethics. Um, overhauling sort of ethics stuff on sort of White House involvement in and sort of uh, federal contracts. Um, yeah, so you're going to see you're going to see a, a, a lot of executive orders, um, things that that he can do that um, that you know can actually um, create some important sort of policy decisions. And on the legislative front, yeah, I agree. You're not going to see, especially if the Republicans um, maintain their seats in Georgia, you're not going to see big sweeping, um, you know legislative changes but you know you'll probably see a pretty sizable um you know covid sort of relief bill i mean we might get one before then but we'll probably get another one later right he might try to attack sort of um sort of student debt forgiveness or relief into that there's a lot of discussion of that um infrastructure is the thing that everyone's talking about right now um that might be the one thing that can unite democrats and republicans um, if they put yeah. their minds to it um, are you, are you saying a full administration later? It's almost time for infrastructure week. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's the low hanging fruit on the on the legislative front. So yeah, I mean, infrastructure would make a ton of sense, right? Both because we have a lot of aging infrastructure, yeah. but also as a kind of way to stimulate economy, right? I mean, like yeah. to say, like let's create some jobs. I mean, it's the kind of same logic that Franklin Roosevelt you know, had during the New Deal, we've got to get people back to work. We've got to get them out there doing something and not just like, you know, again, handing out money is one thing, right? But if you can get people actually working, that's better. And if you can 
have them do something productive, right? Like for the country, then all the better. At least you're not just like throwing money out there. You're spending it on something that we need, right? So um, I think that really, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. I think what's going to be challenging is, you know, the, there's, you know, getting the parties to come together and agree on something like this and work together um, because they're going to be battling about credit. Who gets credit for what? They're going to be battling about their different political ideologies on this, both of which will cause problems. But hopefully they can transcend that enough to get that to happen. And you know that Joe Biden is just like a walking dad joke uh, for, the, for, the, yes. uh, for the State of the Union address. He will say, I want to be a bridge builder in the sense that I actually want to build some bridges. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> That's not a metaphor, people. <laughs> build real bridges. Hopefully not bridges to nowhere, though. So no. hopefully, like, uh, bridges hopefully, hopefully bridges across the St. Croix, please. Um, okay. We have one more big thing to talk about before I let you guys go today. And uh, we're trying to read a lot of tea leaves, and we're, uh, uh, we're waiting to hear a lot more about the Biden legislative agenda, executive orders. But one thing we can talk about is uh, key fee key members of the Biden administration. We have a, we know a lot more since the last time we talked about who's going to yeah. be filling some of these key roles. And although I would say that most of these picks are exceptionally safe, there's a few potential landmines in here. So let yeah. me just walk through this a little bit with you. Um, and by the way, if you're looking for a resource on this, Politico has a really nice rundown of Biden's cabinet picks, um, as well as sort of little brief bios on them. So I, I recommend that one. But um, starting at the top, State Department, uh, uh, he's got Tony Blinken, his longtime advisor on foreign policy for Secretary of State. I would consider that somebody very much in the safe camp um, yep. as, a, as a pick. And you will notice that there are not a lot of um, members of Congress in this, uh, right. uh, in these picks. So, I mean, we, some of our questions about, will he put, put Bernie Sanders in his government? Will he put Elizabeth Warren? The answer seems to be clearly no. Okay, so moving forward, um, Homeland, Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, um, who is um, significant here, not only for his uh, um, time as a, being a U.S. attorney, um, director of, of uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, but all, and formerly a Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, but he's also, um, He's also Latinx, and so that's, uh, I think, probably significant in the role of Homeland Security, someone who's in charge of immigration. Right. UN Ambassador is the longtime um, uh, career in, uh, State Department official, uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. I've heard only uh, really strong things from, not only from Democratic uh, sources, but also Republican sources on her appointment to UN Ambassador. So I think that's uh, probably safe. Um, Avril Haines got picked for DNI, that's Director of National Intelligence. She was his national security advisor during the campaign, former CIA deputy director. Again, I think pretty safe. Um, John Kerry, as Andy already mentioned, is, is, is uh, Biden's climate uh, special climate envoy. Um, how old is John Kerry, by the way? Um, Younger than Joe Biden. Oh, there you go. Okay. Um, uh, What's weird about that one is, so he's a special envoy and he will now be technically outranked by Blinken, by right? Okay, Secretary yep. of State, right. who used to work for right. him when Kerry was Secretary of State. So um, so it's going to be kind of weird. I mean, Kerry is very much an elder statesman or whatever. So like how much sort of independence is going to be given? Is that going to undermine sort of the State Department's ability to sort of be sort of the you know, the, the main body that's engaging in sort of, you know, foreign relations and yeah, right. it, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that 
play. What I, what I read in this, Matt, is that this is a way that Biden is signaling that climate change is really going to matter to him. Sure. So he's putting a will, uh, somebody who can really command media attention in yes. that position, but also somebody who is going to play ball with the State Department. Right. And, and understand. Be, and yeah. Right. He understands the inner workings there. So, yeah. Exactly. I think that one makes a lot of sense. Um, I, the one that I think makes the most sense, honestly, is um, Treasury. He's, uh, he's tapped yeah. Janet Yellen who's the yep. former director of the National Economic Council, but importantly, the former chair of the Federal Reserve. Um, and this is somebody who should have no problem getting confirmed by Republicans. Um, yeah. And then, um, let's see. Uh, the most potentially problematic um, uh nominees so far um his omb director normally you wouldn't even hear about the omb director i think <laughs> uh but it's nira tandon and uh tandon is has um been fairly aggressive on uh the talk shows on twitter and um has Literally certainly aggressive. been combative um for um against republicans and so it's going to be hard to see her getting a bunch of republican votes and so that one's going to be pretty interesting um she's gone out of her way to even attack some of the more kind of swing republicans um and so they might be disinclined to vote for her if she's been personally taking them to task on on twitter she's also hated um in bernie world for helping clinton defeat sanders back in 16. Um, and there's actually reporting on how she punched Sanders 2020 campaign manager in the chest. And I mean, she's, she's aggressive in, in, in lots of ways. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a fairly controversial pick in, in, in that sense, I suppose. Yeah. It be, yeah it, it's, it's a little bit of an odd pick. It, would, it wouldn't be the, uh, it wouldn't be surprising to me if, if he has to find a new OMB director, um, if she can, if she's not going to get the votes, there's one other one that I have con- more concerns about, but I'll, let me go quickly here. Health and human services secretary, Javier Becerra. Um, former California Attorney General, member of Congress. I would really current, current Attorney General. Which I, what's that? He's currently Attorney General. Yeah, currently Attorney General. Sorry, former mm-hmm. member of Congress. Yeah. I think he's a safe pick. Um, I, I disagree. You I disagree. disagree. About that too. Yeah, yeah um, he is. He is controversial for being. I mean, yeah. it's one thing to sort of be sort of standard progressive, but he's a hard yeah. left activist. I mean, he. And the positions yeah. he's taken, like he supports virtually unlimited abortion. He sought to force Catholic institutions to actually provide yeah. abortion yeah. to services their okay. employees, prosecute pro-life activists. He has no experience within um, with public health. Right. Um, so he's been criticized by members of the Biden team for, you know, Biden's own team yeah. for that. That's so, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if he's going to I don't know if that nomination is going to go through. So. Well, he's yeah, he's a, antagonistic a, towards conservatives and Republicans, yeah. not merely just a progressive. He's antagonistic. So, yeah, right. I don't and know. What's the upside? Like, I mean, he has run a large executive, you know, agency now with the Department of Justice in California. But boy, there's a lot of downsides to this pick. I so I agree. I think that's it. Kind of looks good on paper, and then when you look at it more closely, it's like, oh, this is not that good. And he doesn't really have the kind of chops you usually expect for HHS. So. Yeah. Well, that's okay. So I'll revise my position. You guys have convinced me. I, all right, I'll put that one in my uh, in my potential landmines uh, category instead. All right, fair enough. Um, my last landmine, and maybe maybe not as much as Becerra, given what you just said, but I think uh, uh, um, Biden just recently announced he would be tapping uh, a retired Army General Lloyd Austin uh, yeah. to be uh, Secretary of Defense. Um, Austin is a distinguished four-star general, but that is actually part of the problem. Um, 
Austin has only been retired since 2016. You have to be retired for at least seven years in order to assume this uh, Secretary of Defense role. This is an attempt by the US government to keep a separation of the military from this, its civilian right. leadership. Now, this is becoming an issue because General uh, um, Jim Mattis was Donald Trump's first Secretary of Defense and Mattis had to get a special waiver from Congress because he also was too recently retired from from uh, from the military to, to assume the role Secretary of Defense. There have only been two occasions in which a waiver has been granted. Mattis was the first, or Mattis was the most recent, and before that, you had to go back to 1949 with George Marshall. Right. So this is this is troubling. Um, I'm a believer in the, uh, the one of the more powerful things that Joe Biden can do is restore norms of democracy and norms of the institutions of government. And if he right. picks Lloyd Austin, who by all accounts is a, is a very competent four-star general, um, was important in managing the Gulf War, and he was the last, yeah. uh, last UN, uh, U.S. commander of, um, of, of our, uh, our operations in Iraq. He's been commander of CETCOM. But yeah. if he's, um, uh, but if we're sort of, uh, if, if Biden is going to basically validate uh, the Trump move to pull in a relatively recent retired general and make him Secretary of Defense, I think that's a problem. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, and what's interesting is it's not just, I mean, like you expect Republicans to maybe raise some issues just because out of the you know, fun of opposing, right? But, but it's Democrats who are actually saying, like, we're not real excited about this move. We're not sure we want to do this again. We just did this with Mattis, right? Like maybe there's a, a case for once here and there, right? But why, right? Yeah. And so I, this one could be some real problems. I mean, on the other hand, I mean, there's there's some things to like about it, as you noted, and he is maybe the first African-American Secretary of Defense. I mean, that's a big deal, right? So I, I wouldn't be shocked if this goes through, but I also wouldn't be shocked if it ends up not going through. Yeah. So and I, you know, Another thing, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, so he did a good job sort of handling the withdrawal from Iraq, which the policy decision withdrawal was dumb. Um, how he, you know, basically tried to conduct it. I mean, it was about as well executed as it could be. Um, you know, there's some concern that he gave the White House, you know, uh, gave President Obama and his team sort of bad, bad advice on ISIS, you know, about ISIS only being a flash in the pan or whatever, which was clearly wrong. Right. So so you could sort of talk about his sort of read on sort of, you know, on geopolitics. And speaking of geopolitics too, um, geopolitics as well. Um, so he is an army general, right? Um, but the chief ge geopolitical threat that U.S. is facing um, is China, right? And that requires yeah. a naval response, right? Naval, right. you know, the Navy is is one of the most important ways in which yeah. we project strategic power, right? And this is something that, you know, the defense community um, generally acknowledges. And if, if we're going to sort of pivot towards, you know, building up the Navy, right, to address yeah. the Chinese threat, it's going to take a sec def who can wield a mean axe, right? Um, yep. and make this a priority in the Pentagon budget. And it, it's going to take someone who can have that sort of administrative chops to, to do that. And, and, you know, managing the Pentagon is a hugely difficult task, right? And I'm not sure if, you know, he has the chops for that, even though he's fantastic as a general, right? Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that um, just given his his role as being an army, an army general, if that situates him well for thinking, about the geopolitics of, of, you know, the geopolitical threats that we face now, but, but we'll, we'll see what happens. 
listened to an interview with uh, Michael Hanlon and Corey Shockey. Shockey's a Republican, Hanlon's a Democrat, but they're both pretty hawkish. Um, and they're both defense department um, experts. And what um, what Hanlon was concerned about, uh, they're both concerned about the fact this waiver that needs to be granted. But what Hanlon was concerned yeah. about was that um, Austin is mostly focused on the Middle East and mm. America's real strategic interests are going to be uh, China, especially, but also Russia. And that's not an area that he's had much purview over. Um, Shocking's uh, concern, I think, which I think is really relevant, is although Austin has enormous military experience, she likes to quote that running the Defense Department is running a um, uh, an organization with $740 million budget and uh, 2 million employees. And Austin, for all of his experiences, hasn't really had to deal with a budget like that. At CENTCOM, he's not doing a, dealing with a budget like that. And so that's going to be, uh, she was sort of expecting a lot of things. A lot, the conventional wisdom was that Biden was going to pick Michelle Flournoy for this position. Right. And for right. whatever reason, she's been left off the team entirely. Now, you might see her show up as an assistant secretary of defense, but keep that in mind for the future. Yeah. Yeah. And she I may mean, get show up as the secretary of defense. I mean, because I do wonder if like the conventional wisdom was right in terms of the best pick here. Um, I kind of think she would have been it, but yeah. And I, I do wonder if, if some of this is, is identity politics, right? Is like, yeah. well, we would like to have, you know, a, a black man serve, you know, in this position, yeah. which I think, you know, would be great. But I wonder, you know, if that, that is getting in the way of, of looking at sort of other criteria right. that are perhaps more relevant to doing the job well. Correct. So. Um, by all accounts, uh, Biden developed a very close relationship with Austin uh, during his time in the Obama administration. Yeah. So there's some there's some personal connections here too. Yes. A couple more really we're running we're running out of time, guys. But uh, Tom Vilsack um, just can't stop being Secretary of Agriculture. Um, yeah. He was Secretary of Agriculture all eight years of the Obama administration. Um, was thought like he might be Hillary Clinton's running mate, did not, because as it turns out, there's somebody in the country even more boring uh, than Tim Kaine. Um, it's Tom Vilsack, um, but he's going to come back and be Secretary of Agriculture again, some more. Um, and then finally, um, we've got, uh, we do, um, for, uh, um, for housing and urban development, um, we've, we, uh, um, Ohio Congresswoman Martha, Marsha Fudge, will be leading um will be leading that she had been thought to also be a contender for ag um and ag is interesting on this and we don't really have time to go into this now but um uh ag uh, the department of agriculture really has transitioned from being an agency primarily concerned with farmers to primarily consumers of nutrition um and uh fudge is somebody who has followed who's been uh key on policy issues uh relating to um a government a provision of aid in terms of nutrition so which is hilarious so yep with a name yeah. like that with a name like fudge exactly fudge. yes yeah. oh, you forgot to mention the other key carryover is uh fauci fauci is That's going true. to um true. stay on board so continuity yeah. yep. fauci will stick around um we've got a couple more positions still out there in the wings veterans affairs education commerce um and importantly, attorney general. So pay attention to all of those um, coming, still coming down the pipe. So we've got a lot um, still to form up here. Yep. All right, guys. Unfortunately, like Sam, I have to go to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll be back next in your feed um, pretty soon, I think, for the fourth part of our, um, our mini-series of 2020 and beyond, which will deal with polarization and political culture. 
Um, so if you're worried about how you can talk to your neighbors about uh, their politics versus your own, um, we are here to help. We'll, be, we'll just be your advice column um, and how to, how to engage politically. How's that? Um, you guys ready for that? I'm making oh, yeah. a note right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to us. Um, you can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Subscribe to our, our podcast channel. It's channel 3900. It, it has an email address too, channel, channel 3900 at gmail.com if you want to email them. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff on our podcast channel, including maybe a special little Christmas bonus from us. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you can catch things like Bookish at Bethel, a video store, um, Avatar with Academics, and lots of other things in between. Uh, thanks for listening. And a special note to my fellow Buckeye fans, um, Michigan canceled the game on us this year. I'm just going to go ahead and count that a win. So on behalf of my colleagues here about the university, go Royals what? and go Buckeyes. Buckeyes.